I'm Satya Nelms and this is Our Mother's Gardens. On this show, we discuss the seeds our mother sowed in us, the ways we have grown, and how we learn to blossom. In this space, Black women that have learned to define success on their own terms share stories of their beginnings, healing, and thriving. Welcome and thank you for being a part of this community of mamas, grandmamas, aunties, sisters, cousins, daughters, and friends. In this episode, we are in the garden with Kabibi Devereaux. Sweet Epiphany's apothecary owner Kabibi remembers knowing three things for sure when choosing her career path. Quite simply, she wanted to, one, never work in the corporate world, two, do meaningful work in the medical field, three, leave spiritual work to clergy members. While some things went according to plan and others did not, Ms. Devereaux knows every step of her journey thus far has been a necessary experience ordained by the universe in preparation for the spiritual and natural healing work she loves and shares in support of wellness. Sweet Epiphany's apothecary is the culmination of her life experiences, her love of healing, and her ability to create unique formulas that facilitate health and wellness for her clients. Okay. All right. Thank you so much again for being on the show. So um, you are going to open the season, which I'm very excited about. Um, And this is the the fourth season of the show. I started working on it two years ago, and then it aired for the first time in March 2020. Yeah, so... I'm really excited to be to be talking with you and to open this fourth season, this second year anniversary with you. Yay, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. So when you hear the word mother, what do you think of? What is it what does it call to mind? When I think of mother, um, I think of someone who's kind and nurturing and supportive and kind of like a um, a lioness with cubs. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And how has, how has that definition of mother, your conception of mother, how has that evolved, I guess, over the course of your life? Um, I think if I had been asked when I was younger, it would have been a lot. It it still would have been nurturing, but I don't think I would have seen the fierceness of mothers yet Mm -hmm. um, and how they protect their children. Because although my mom did that for me, I didn't necessarily see it. Mm -hmm. I just saw my mom as like um, a nice person when we went out. And somebody just who had a lot to do and a lot to contend with Mm -hmm. personally. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really see that fierceness until like the end of high school going into college Mm -hmm. as I was going out on my own and really being um, independent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you brought up your mom. How would you... How would you describe your mother or mothers if there, you know, is more than one, you know, mother figure that comes to mind when you think about the mothers in your life? Um, 
my mom is very sensitive and kind, just very kind-hearted and nourishing, nurturing, nourishing, same. Um, to put it in terms of tarot, because I think like that now, um, I would see her as like the queen of pentacles. She was a nurse, so she was just always really caring. And she was the first person I saw that gave to the homeless. And like we drove home and got blankets and stuff and then drove back to where they were and made sure that they were okay. And she checked on the baby and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That was with them. Um, And then my other mother figure that I can think of off the top of my head would be my Aunt Eunice. She was very strong and always feeding people um, and always family oriented. Like every weekend she would have the family over for some kind of big Sunday meal. And it was everybody, all the cousins, all the brothers and sisters. There were 10 of them. My mom's the baby of 10. Mm -hmm. And so if you were in town, you were at Aunt Eunice's house. You always had a place to stay. And no matter what time you flew in, she would have a warm plate of food waiting for you. And it wasn't just like, you know, a sandwich. It was like greens and ham and turkey and whatever else. Like she would make sure you had a whole plate of food. And she, like, both of them are just like that. Food is like a big um, connector in our family. Hmm. Yeah. So what did you learn about how to be from those women, from your mother and from your aunt? What did they teach you about womanhood about personhood either directly or just by like observation serving them they taught me that womanhood is hard Mm -hmm. and being a mother is hard it's hard work because when you are in our family a true mother um you're not just a mother to your kids, you're a mother to all the kids. Mm. And my aunt was like that for sure. And my mom, if you ask anybody in our family, they'll say um, that she loves babies. So people will like be like, oh, you need to go to the country with Aunt Lois so that she can, um, she can keep you. She would love that. And she just kind of has like kids around her all the time, whether it's like a grandchild or cousins who have come down to visit and leave their kids with her or um, whatever the case is, even at her church, you know, the kids know her. And it's just this overarching kindness that doesn't turn people away. Even if you don't have much or you feel like you don't have anything, there's always something to share. So even at the times where I felt so broke and like I had no money I had friends that would come over and I'd be like okay well do you want dinner because I'm about to eat and I would just split whatever I had with them and that was just what I knew about being a friend being a daughter being a mother figure because that's what I saw the mothers in my lives in my life doing for other people right 
So what about the way that you were raised by these women really worked for you, like who you are specifically? What was in alignment, particularly in alignment with your spirit? Um, <clears throat> I think the kindness was a big thing for me. Um, because I wasn't like the other kids and my parents were very protective. And so I didn't get to do everything that the other kids got to do. Um, <clears throat> but I was always very sensitive and my mom would, um, just say things like, well, you're smart. You can come up with something else too, or you like to do this and, <clears throat> why don't you see if they want to do that with you or, you know, giving ideas and not necessarily backing down and saying, I'm going to bend my rules that I have in place to protect you. But um, instead of being like, that's so weird, Kabibi, it was like, oh, okay, well, that's a cool thing. Why don't you do it this way? Or you like to do this other thing. Why don't you do that instead mm-hmm. and it kind of built this independence in me um the kind redirection just kind of built this place where I felt like I was okay the way I was even if I knew that I was being weird you know mm-hmm. like being interested in spiritual things as a kid and wanting to hear those stories and sitting by the adults as they told those kind of stories um <clears throat> was definitely a different thing than other kids were doing Mm -hmm. but it was never turned to me like you're such a weird kid Mm. like why would you ever want to sit in here and listen to these stories or you know um so there was definitely this level of kindness that encouraged me to be myself and encouraged me to be smart um and encouraged me to like the things that I like and not be dependent on the things that other people thought were the things that you should like, like Mm. being in the cool crowd wasn't necessarily um, a concern for me, I guess. Mm. What sparked the, that interest in spirituality? What, or I guess, what are your first memories of, of having that interest sparked? Um, my first (laughs) memories of it. So my family is from the country in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember my mom and aunt and and cousin who were around my mom's age, um, talking about paranormal things that had happened to a cousin of mine. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of grew up in the church. And so um, there was a lot of talk of like spiritual warfare and all of these like demonic things that were happening. And I was like, what happened? What is going on? Like, that is crazy. Did you hear this? Did you know that so-and-so saw this demon face on her wall? That's crazy. And like, just things like that. And like somebody was stepping on her scale and so I was <laughs> remember hearing that. And instead of being freaked out, 
which there was some fear of like, well, I don't ever want to go through that, but mm-hmm. I really want to hear about it. And what did you do about that? Um, <clears throat> that type of thing was super interesting to me. Um, and that's the first thing that I can think of. And then they would always tell stories about like old wives tales about going out in the woods. If you see a blue light and different things like that, um, mm-hmm that now are just normal stories to me because everybody told them my whole life. Mm -hmm. But I know are not normal stories for most people that didn't grow up in the country. Mm. I think that's beautiful how that interest was sparked by the women and the mothers in your family. And then as that interest, you know, blossomed in you, they held space for it. And encouraged you to keep, you know, diving into it and didn't try to get you to shy away from it. That's really beautiful. Um, so are there are there ways, though, that you felt as though the way you were raised was not in alignment with what you needed? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, with my parents being so protective that was really difficult sometimes for me. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad was in the military. And so my mom was a single mother mm-hmm. sometimes. And that transition was really difficult because then I guess it's like any single mother story, right? You have to step up and do things that you're not used to doing as a kid and helping take care of the siblings and whoever else is around that's younger Mm-hmm. So I did have to step into some of those roles sometimes and we didn't always have everything that we wanted. <clears throat> One thing that um, my parents did was that they didn't really talk about money and stuff around us mm-hmm. and they didn't really argue that much around us, which is great. But also I think seeing those struggles and seeing real life issues is important. Mm-hmm. And so I wish that I had gotten to know some of those things. Like, I don't have a memory of us not having enough food to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember times where it was like, no, this is what we're having. This is all we're having. And, you know, like, that's all you need, <laughs> you know, right. like, instead of just, um, explaining the situation but I kind of wish that they had explained things like that a little bit more to us and helped us with like um real life things you know like how to handle your finances and how to um how to have an argument or a productive argument with someone Mm -hmm. instead of you know us not seeing that at all like there was definitely some growing that I had to do and, and still have to do in those areas. Right. Right. How, how do you think, you know, how do you think you being black affected the way that the way that you experienced your upbringing and also the way that you were in the way that you were brought up? Um, There's definitely a toughness and an independence that 
I noticed um, I went to a predominantly white institution for college. And there were definitely things that I dealt with seemingly better. I had to suck it up. There's no more money coming. Mm -hmm. There aren't any more resources. Mm -hmm. Like you have to figure it out and you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Even when I moved out on my own, um, like you figure out what you're going to do. You're short for rent. You figure it out. Like there's no time to cry. Nobody's coming to save you. Um, And the people in your life that you would ask for help probably don't have it either. You just kind of have to problem solve it on your own. And I feel like um, regardless of how you've grown up as a black person, you kind of own that for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, that there isn't anybody else there. So you can talk to people and you can bounce ideas off of them, but nobody can generally, generally speaking, nobody can step in and just save you from the troubles of your world. Mm. You have to face them. And even if you procrastinate and you don't want to get it done, it's going to come back anyway. So you just have to decide, do I want to deal with it when it's worse? Or can I muster the stamina to deal with it now? And I found um, also that a lot of times I didn't have time to cry about things. And maybe that made my life look a lot easier. Mm. But um, to the outside world, and I know that people would be like, well, your parents had money when we were growing up. I'm like, uh. My dad was in the army. There is no money there. (laughs) We didn't have any money. But I can understand how it would seem like that if you're not complaining about, you know, like not being able to make bills or not being able to do something that you want to do. And that was one thing that I did pick up from my parents and my mom was we don't have time to cry. You know, like we rely on our faith. We pray about it and we trust that God is going to come through. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't come through this time, it was for a good reason. And it's going to happen next time. We're going to figure it out. And regardless, you don't lose faith. Weeping indoors for a night, cry your tears, get up, get back to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of sulking that can be done. Like people don't necessarily believe in depression in our Mm -hmm. family Mm -hmm. and mental health issues. So it's like, um, dyslexia, he just needs to do better. Right. (laughs) You know, he just needs to focus on reading some more. Like, what can we do to help him focus on reading? Go in there and read that book again. (laughs) You know, like that's a made up something. So it was those kinds of things that I think makes life look easy and it makes life look manageable. But really, when you're on the inside of the infrastructure, you're like, oh, wow, this is hard. Right. right. Yeah. Yes. This is really hard. Being a woman is hard. Being a Black woman is hard. And society doesn't care if you're a dark-skinned Black woman, light-skinned Black woman. Well, maybe if you're light-skinned, but... <clears throat> There's this underlying tone of if you're black, you just have to suck it up and deal with it. And you can. Mm-hmm. Like you're subhuman, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Right. Do you ever recall seeing your mother cry? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of a specific situation and um, my dad was stationed overseas at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually don't think that she saw me. You know how when you're a kid, you like walk into the room and <laughs> somebody's sleeping or they're doing something and you're like, oh, and then you right. back out because you don't right. want to get in trouble. Right. Or whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so um, I do remember that particular instance of seeing her cry. But I thought it was just like we have a large family. Did somebody get sick? Did somebody pass away? And I don't think I ever mentioned it and she never said anything about it. Hmm. So I don't really know what that was about, but imagine like your husband is stationed overseas. You have two kids. You're living with your sister um, and trying to hold it all together. Mm -hmm. You know, it's difficult. Right, right. As a kid, I guess for... Being a child who didn't usually see, you know, your mother cry, and as you said, like we don't have we don't have time for this. Like that was the general that being the general sentiment. What did it feel? How did it feel to see to see your mother cry? Um, it feels very vulnerable, and maybe that's why I didn't say anything. Mm. Um. Because now my instinct would be like, what's wrong? Are you okay? But I just remember like just stopping. And I think I was making noise and just stopping and just being like, got to back on up out of here without <laughs> anybody seeing right. me. You know, like, I hope she didn't see me. I hope she doesn't ask me anything. Mm -hmm. um, it was almost like an invasion of a private moment, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And what would I have done? Right. I was like 12, I think, 11. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't see that very often and it just, it felt vulnerable, but I also think it kind of felt wrong, uh, uh -huh. you know, like, Ooh, I definitely don't need to be in here. Uh, like, this is not for me. Right. Kind of thing. So mm. how do you feel about expressing your own emotions now? Like, how do you feel about people seeing you in situations where you would be crying or expressing emotion in a way that would make you vulnerable? It's definitely difficult. It's a stretching thing for me, for sure. Um, even in situations like watching TV with friends or something and a commercial comes on and I start tearing up. I'm definitely um, the person who either dots at it like inconspicuously or what I hope is inconspicuously um, or like fans a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you bend over mm -hmm. like on the couch and you're like, oh, you know, like just a little fan. Oh no, I'm just hot. I'm okay. You know, like whatever kind of lie you come up with. Um, I'm good for yawning and like wiping the other side <laughs> of my eye. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
add that to my repertoire. Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) But then at the same time, I am known to be more of a sensitive friend, Mm -hmm. um, which is so weird. But I think it's just easier. It's an easier emotion to show um, as far as like, oh, sorry, anger is an easier emotion to show Mm -hmm. than tears and crying. Mm -hmm. So I might say something like, oh, that makes me so emotional. Mm-hmm. In the hopes that if I admit it, I won't cry mm-hmm. and it won't become a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, yeah, I don't really emote in that way in front of other people. And do you think do you think that relates directly back to again that feeling of we don't have time for that. And when you do cry, it's a very personal, very vulnerable, very private thing. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. So do you, thinking about, you know, again, calling on these memories of your mother, do you remember seeing your mother care for herself? Like what was, what were your mom's self-care practices? Did you observe her? you know, taking time for herself, mothering herself? Um, A lot of my mom's self-care has come through the church. Mm -hmm. And um, because I think, I think there would be, there's like this um, permission Mm-hmm. like to leave your house and go to church you know like you can leave any time and go to church church is a safe place you're probably not doing anything wrong by going to church and so I think um keeping us in church all the time mm-hmm. was like a way for her to be able to get her own time mm-hmm. because we were occupied in children's church and Sunday school and all of that stuff so she got her own time she got adult time And, you know, even if we were there and we were asking her questions or whatever, it wasn't as intense as just being with your kids all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, being at work or being with your kids, you know, like, um, unless you're with family, it's like, you're just always with your children. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was like a permissive break for her. Mm. Um, and gave her like the strength and confidence she needed to do all of the things she had to do when my dad was gone Mm -hmm. or even when he was there, I'm sure. So how do you care for yourself now? How do you mother yourself? Um, I take a lot of alone time. I've given myself permission to do that. Um, even when it's not a popular choice for other people. Um, but I struggle with mothering myself. Um, especially as I've gotten older, there are some things that are a lot easier 
um, to do. And then there are other things that are a lot harder to do. So things before that I would have done would have been like give myself a pedicure or um, stay home from the party and watch a movie by myself or something. Mm -hmm. And those were easy things for me to do. Um, Nowadays, like that's just become a normal part of life. So it doesn't necessarily feel like self-care anymore. It's Mm. like, this is just what I do is I stay home and I watch a movie. Even if I, like, if I don't feel like going out or being with people. So that doesn't really feel like what I, or what a lot of people would call Mm self-care, I guess. So I need to think about that a little bit more. Mm. Okay. Yeah. When you reflect on how you were mothered and the way that you experienced that mothering, what is a message or a lesson that stands out for you? Listening to kids. I think would be, that's the first one that came to mind. Um, One thing that was like drilled in us by... Well, by these two women, my mother and then my aunt, was basically like, if something's wrong, tell us. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's like a serious situation, like being molested, or if it's um, a situation where someone's like wronging you. Um And, you know, some of that is annoying (laughs) to, like, have your kids come tell you stuff all the time. You're like, stop being a tattletale Mm -hmm. and go on outside and play. Right. Um, But they always made sure that we knew that we could tell them the important things, especially, Mm -hmm. but that we could tell them things. Um, And I think that that's so important because kids need to feel heard, too. Um. And it really solidifies the way that you feel about yourself, I think, and the confidence that you have to speak up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're trying to talk to your mom and she's always busy or she's like, I don't have time for that. Eventually, you begin to feel like nobody has time for me. Mm-hmm. You know, what I have to say isn't important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I didn't necessarily struggle with that as much. Um, And as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot quieter and kind of um, measurable about, or measured Mm -hmm. about the things that I do say, like I don't have to be speaking all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't have to always be the loudest person in the room. but I think it was really helpful to know that I could talk to my mom and my aunt about anything and they were going to listen to me Mm. and they were going to actually hear me and not just have like a surface level response to everything I said. Mm. Yeah. So 
as you as you hold space or as you consider holding space for others mothering and nurturing others what is something that you try to keep at the forefront of your mind what is something that is important to you and a priority to you when you enter space where you are mothering someone else whether that person is yourself or a friend or whomever it may be um patience um when people come to talk to you um whether i'm doing some sort of reading or i'm just talking to a friend I don't ever want them to feel like there's not enough time. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes people need to tell their stories because they don't get to tell them very often. And I want them to feel like there's enough time to tell that story and really be heard Mm -hmm. and really be seen. And I think the foundation of that is to be patient Mm -hmm. and not try to rush them through not try to finish their sentences. Um, Yeah, I think that is the most important thing to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Mother's Gardens. If you want to support the show, you can make a sustaining donation on Patreon by visiting our page, Our Mother's Gardens. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at Our Mother's Gardens PC. Our Mother's Gardens is a Honey Bunch of Stinkweed production. The podcast features music produced by Pata.